Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Psalms chapter 16. Um, And let's pray before we get started. How about that? Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance to just um, open ourselves up to, to what you have for us. I pray that we would uh, be sensitive to your spirit as we um, study this, uh, this section. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a uh, little belated, but, but happy Thanksgiving. Uh, <laughs> um, and this psalm is actually a Thanksgiving psalm. Um, it's a psalm of David. Uh, he's prophesying about Jesus uh, in the end of the psalm. Um, so the psalm's going to close with uh, the death and resurrection and his reign. Um, but it's interesting. The introduction says it's a miktam of David. This word is actually only used five other times in the psalms, specifically all together in uh, Psalms 56 through 60. And all of those psalms have pretty much the same structure. They all start out with David having some people, or whether it's people or entities, I don't know. Somebody is frustrating him. He's just struggling. Uh, Somebody's trying to kill him. And it all ends with this triumphant end. And so there's something to that that storyline that as we grapple with life, it's a struggle, but there is triumph at the end as we follow the Lord. Um, And that's what you're going to see as we go through this psalm. Um, Luther actually translates the word a golden jewel. Um, It's something of great value that is actually, the the root of it implies that you're uh, scraping it out or digging it out. And so there's a mystery involved. Um, Some have actually called this psalm the sculpture of David, and there's um, some speculation that it was actually inscribed on one of the pillars in the temple. And so it was just something that was commonplace in the temple to know this psalm. Um, But let's jump into it. And start verse 1. Miktam of David, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and I have no good besides you. I think that's really important that as we deal with those struggles in life, that we look to God for preservation. You know, often we get overwhelmed with life. And, and we get distracted. For David, he is intending to keep his focus on God. And at the same time, he recognizes that he can't do anything apart from God. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And Romans reiterates the same idea in 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, we have no means to do any good apart from him. He's created us for good works, it says. Uh, John 15, 5 brings us back to a focus. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. 
The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. It's a powerful statement. You can do nothing without me. God for us is to be our security, our preservation, our provider, and our means to being productive. And when we depend on him, it's where life begins. And we are to seek him and expect his preservation. Verse 3 says, as for the saints who are in the earth, they're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Now, David earlier says, the Lord is my, I delight in the Lord. He's all my delight. Here, the change is to the people of God, that we are to delight in each other. You know, we can look back over history and see some amazing church fathers and some great guys that, that we just can celebrate their lives committed to God. But at the same time, it's one another that we're to be delighting in right now. We're to enjoy each other. This saints idea, it actually goes back to Exodus uh, chapter 19, verse 6. It says, you are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. It's an identity that God has called you. It's something that he makes you into. It's not something I'm, I'm perfect in all I do. It's what he's called you. Saints. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 says, saints by calling. It's what he's calling you to, which is uh, we are saints by calling with all who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. How are we saints? When we're calling on the Lord, we are declared saints. That's a powerful thought. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his, his inheritance in the saints? What is our inheritance? It has, it's not about physical things. It's about one another. And until we learn to appreciate one another, then we're not going to appreciate heaven because that's what heaven is. God has called us to a family and to a relationship with one another. And so we are called to love each other and to, be, to understand the riches of each of our individual personalities being a part of our life. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to be intertwined in each other's lives and, and to understand that that is the riches of our inheritance. And I know we often, you know, we can get distracted with disagreements and personality conflicts. But God's called us beyond that. He's called us to a heart of love, hearts of grace and compassion.
and hearts that bring unity. What was the last thing Jesus prayed? That they might be one. That there might be unity as the Father and I are one. May they be one together. That's God's desire for us. Everybody in the church, everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord is to be in unity. And we really have a problem with that in the world today. There is a major unity issue. But that's what God has called us to. It says, they will know you by your love for each other. And to the extent that you're loving one another, whether they're in this congregation or not, the extent that you're loving them is the extent that you are revealing God to the world around us. Verse 4 says, The sorrow of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Interesting, uh, the word God here is a transliteration. It's not actually in the text. So it it should just read, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another, anything other than God. If you are seeking something else, ultimately, it will produce sorrow and increase sorrow in your life. He says, anybody that's bartered for anything else, sorrow is going to increase. But for David, he pronounces that all others... And all that other ritualistic worship, everything else is something he's not going to participate in. His focus is the pleasure of God. And when we have any other thing becomes our focus, it produces sorrow. Because the promise is that in him is joy and peace and sorrow should dissipate as we get to know him because we trust him and we're entrusted to him and we don't have to worry about the situations that we're in because God's in control and we have that peace Exodus 23 David's looking back to this statement uh, in verse 13 be on your guard don't even mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard on your mouth. In the same way, Hosea looks to the millennial reign. He says, I'm going to remove the name, names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I'll also make a covenant with them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creeping things of the ground, I'll abolish the bow and the sore and war from the land and I'll make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness then you'll know that I'm the Lord. That's what God's called us to. We are to be the bride of Christ. He's betrothed us.
righteousness. And we are to take his name and proclaim that he is in control. He's our our husband. The one who takes care of us. The one who provides for us. Verse 5 says, The Lord is my portion, my inheritance, and my cup. You support my lot, and the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. For the Levites, um, they were given a portion. Deuteronomy 10 says the Levites don't have a portion or an inheritance with his brothers. Instead, the Lord is his inheritance. And David understands that, that God is all he needs. That's the true inheritance. It's him, the lone supplier and support, the focus for all of our ambitions. Interesting, we can contrast um, a couple chapters back with uh, Psalms 15. Upon the wicked, he'll rain snares, fire, brimstone. Burning wind will be their portion of their cup. But here, the Lord is my cup. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You know, nobody wants to deal with the suffering part. We want to deal with the peace and the joy and the happiness. And that's the good part. But there's a part that we're called to, that we are called to join in the sufferings. And even Jesus himself prayed in the garden, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nobody, not even Jesus wants to deal with suffering. But he willingly did. Because he knew the results. A few chapters before that, the disciples were arguing about being on his right and his left. And, and he said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And then he says, oh, but you will. You're going to experience what I'm going through. It's not going to be easy. And our lives are not promised to be easy. But we are promised to be provided for. We are promised to be comforted in the midst of that. Philippians 3.8 says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered and lost all things, and I count them to be rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I may be found in him having not a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. 
being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. We need to be conformed to his image in the way that we deal with the struggles of our life. It's entrusting ourselves to God when it's hard. And it's easy to say. It's a lot harder to do. But that's what we're called to. And when we do it, we can respond in the same way David does here. Verse 7, he says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me indeed. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I've set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. I will not be shaken. Interesting, uh, in Psalms 15, the, the psalm before this, it ends with that exact phrase. He who does these things will never be shaken. Psalms 1 said, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat uh, stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. John Trapp put it this way. I set the eyes of my faith full upon him and suffered it not to take to other things. The practice of putting God first in everything is what we're called to. It's an exercise of faith that empowers David to a confidence in every struggle he has. It's true that as we sleep, we do process and organize our thoughts. He says um, that at night he's instructed. In a sense... Um, our mind reprocesses everything and the information we've opened ourselves up to throughout the day is the means by which our mind processes things. Um, for David, his meditation day and night on the word became the means of the instruction at night. You ever thought about that? struggle with, with sleeping and with, with all these thoughts in our head. For David, because he focused on the word of God, it became the means to peace, even as sleep. Numbers, on another point, he says in Numbers 12, 6, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I'll speak with him in a dream. Now, we consider David a prophet because here in a minute he's going to prophesy about Jesus. Um, but as a little aside, Corinthians chapter 12 says that we are to earnestly desire the greater gifts. And uh, then he says, at the end of that, I'll show you a, still a better way. 
And we got chapter 13. What's chapter 13? Love, right? If you don't know that's the love chapter, you need to go back and read it. (laughs) But chapter 13 is the love chapter. And immediately after that, he goes right back to the gifts of the Spirit. And he says, pursue love, but earnestly spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. So there is a sense in that we, by focusing like David has on the word day and night, that we are preparing ourselves to hear the voice of God even in our dreams. And that's a means for us to earnestly desire these greater gifts and pursue it. I mean, yeah, we can pursue it in prayer and we can pursue it in the study of his word so we can recognize the true voice of the Lord because there are a lot of voices out there. And even in our dreams, people have some messed up dreams because they've opened themselves up to some messed up thoughts throughout their day. They've not guarded their mind in what they're reading in what they're focusing on, in what their their interest is, it's not the law of the Lord. And we have are called to something better. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, especially that you prophesy. It's not that studying the word is definitely going to make you a prophet. Not saying that, but it prepares your heart to be open to his voice. And it allows you to recognize it when he does speak to you and to tell the difference between the world and the voice of God. Interesting, in in chapter 7, he goes back to the same idea and says, You've tried my heart and have visited me at night. But that only happens when we're focused on the word during the day. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell in security for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. David's happy, he's standing in confidence with God. He's recognizing his glory doesn't come from himself, but from God. And he looks to a physical resurrection. He's looking to a hope. But he also recognizes something else and prophesies about the Holy One. This is Jesus who will be resurrected without undergoing decay. There are two other passages, Acts uh, 2.22, during Pentecost, Peter quotes this verse, um, and then Acts 13. I'm going to read Acts 13 because the other one's a little bit longer, and, you know, time. Um, <laughs> Acts 13.32. Uh, uh, this is Paul in Antioch. He said, we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers 
that God has fulfilled the promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is written in the Psalms, in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, he's spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served his purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. This statement is for us now. Today, it's declared to you. You can be freed from everything that you can't be freed from, from laws, from rules and rule keeping. God wants that freedom for you. Hebrews 6.19 says, This hope we have as an anchor for our soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's this hope that anchors our soul, that Jesus did not undergo decay, and that we are called to follow his lead and he will resurrect. And there will be a point where we will give an account. Some to life everlasting and some to judgment. And that's up to you. That's the call that God wants for you. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But that belief requires an active belief. Entrusting yourself to him. And it results in verse 11. You will make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And it's easy to get lost in this life to stray away. As we look to the Lord, he does reveal that way. It's in the Holy One, in his presence, abiding in the promises he has for us. We're to rest in that peace. And you can do that now. Even though the world is in chaos. When you entrust yourself to him, it doesn't matter what else is happening because he's in control. And your faith is trusting him. Where is joy made complete? It's in his presence. While David is looking forward to a time 
present reign, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the future millennial, the eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Interestingly, he uses present tense here, which means it's now. Fullness of joy is presently in the presence of the Lord. The eternal pleasures are presently at his right hand where we are to be held. Exodus 33, 14 uh, Moses says, well, God says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And Moses responds, if your your presence does not go with us, don't lead us up from here. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that I and your, we, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. How do we get distinguished from the rest of the world? It's by the presence of God in us. And it's only evident as we're abiding in that presence. It's his presence that gives the evidence, but it's his call to abide in me. Colossians 3 says, Therefore, if you have been risen up with Christ, raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above. I like the other one that says, set your affections on the things above. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Have you died to this world? Are you ready to be hidden with Christ and God? Matthew Henry says, all our joys here are empty, defective. But in heaven there's fullness of joy. Our pleasures here are transient and momentary, and such is the nature of them that it's not fit that they should last long. But those at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. The word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He has pleasures forever for you. And you need to experience those today. The fullness of his joy in this moment And look forward to 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, We will be caught up in the air together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. I have a hope to always be with the Lord. But I'm starting now to abide in his presence. And that's the call to you. Abide in his presence now. Enter into the fullness of joy today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given evidence 
of your fullness through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that, that you would manifest that in each person here. I pray that your Spirit would, would anoint all of us, that we would have the confidence, the peace, and the surety of this hope that you've called us to. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. Thank you for this prophecy. And thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.